Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Provcast. My name's Cord and I am your faithful host and one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. On June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down an infamous court decision uh, from 49 years ago, which was entitled Roe v. Wade. This decision created a, quite a stir in the nation, and it should be considered by Christians with a biblical worldview as a lens through which we view uh, all moments like this, all cultural moments. It's significant because it involves something fundamental, fundamental about humanity, and namely fundamental about the right to and protection for unborn life in the womb. In this episode, I have three major goals that I want to focus on, and I'm not going to be able to cover all the bases on this issue, but hopefully we can cover at least a few that I have deemed extremely important, and I hope they're helpful for you. First, I'm hoping to focus on the actual legal decision from last Friday, and discuss a little history, a little governmental structure, and really get down to the facts on what actually happened on Friday in the Supreme Court of the United States. Sadly, we live in a day where opinion and propaganda are really easily accessible, while facts have to be mined with due diligence and a lot of hard work. And so it's worth it, though, because facts really matter to the Christian. Uh, as Jesus said, we will know the truth, and the truth sets us free. Second, I want to discuss the moral issue of abortion and the moral issue that it presents not only to mankind, but also, in specific, the moral issue that it presents for Christians to consider what it means for man to be created in God's image, what God's design and desire is for humanity, uh, and specifically what mothers and fathers and families should do um, in light of the decision. Finally, I want to briefly talk about how all Christians should respond to this moment in a way that honors God and advances the kingdom of Christ, and in particular, I just want to speak to providence and uh, how we should respond. So let's start with a little bit of history. Roe v. Wade was a court case brought before the High Court in 1973, and after making its way through the various courts, it came to the Supreme Court of the United States to be ruled on. The original case involved a woman named Norma McCorvey. Using the moniker Jane Roe to protect her identity, she filed a lawsuit against the Dallas County District Attorney, Henry Wade. Henry Wade represented the state of Texas and the state of Texas' legal case against abortion, which existed on the books in Dallas, Texas at the time that Miss McCorvey sought the abortion. And as is the case uh, with many cases, it made its way through the judicial circuit, and during that time it is important to note that Miss McCorvey actually did give birth to the child that she was suing the state of Texas uh, for not giving her the right to an abortion for. That child's name was Shelley, and she later went on to be adopted by a couple in Texas. Still, however, the case went forward, and the ruling came down in 1973, and it began one of the greatest fights and one of the greatest tragedies of modern American history. In a 7-2 opinion, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the Texas law outlawing abortion was unconstitutional. The primary reason and clause cited by the seven justices of the Supreme Court at the time was a right to privacy. Quote, The right of privacy, whether it be found in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon the state action, as we feel it is, or in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether to terminate her pregnancy. Close quote. This decision what began as what 
could not be described as anything less than an avalanche of disagreement and controversy. Not merely because of the nature of abortion, but really because of the text of the Constitution itself. So we probably should begin by analyzing this issue on two fronts. So we can provide a basis through which we can really understand the firestorm of 1973, and in so doing understand the firestorm that erupted last week in Friday's ruling that repealed it. Now, I want to warn you, some of this is going to seem like a, a history lesson directly out of your uh, high school government class, uh, and, and I apologize for that. If your teenagers in the, are in the car and they're listening, then I hope that they really uh, perk their ears up, and forgive me if this sounds like it's a condescension, but, but I do want to say, in our age of social media, it's really important to pull back and look at the facts before we assess every and all situations politically, and the cultural zeitgeist, I get it, it demands immediate reaction. But as Christians, we know that our knee-jerk reactions often lead us uh, to misguided areas, and they can lead to all sorts of dissension, trouble, and sin. And so this may seem like it's a little uh, tedious, but I think it's really important, so let's jump in. First, in order in order of uh, importance, we have to take some time to discuss how the government was formed in the United States by the founders and the function of each of its branches of government in their respective right. It's only in understanding what the Supreme Court is and is not responsible for that will give us a clearer picture of what actually happened last Friday. So the federal government of the U.S., as we know, exists in three primary branches. We have the executive branch, which is represented by the elected president of the United States and his administration. We have the legislative branch, which is represented by elected senators, House members, and they make up the Congress. And then we have the judicial branch, which is represented for federally appointed justices, uh, and they make up the nine-person high court. So I want to focus really heavily in here on the legislative and the judicial branches briefly because it's the distinction between those two branches that really is at the heart of this ruling, both 1973 ruling and the ruling that came down last Friday. So the legislative branch is made up at the federal level of duly elected representatives that come from each of the 50 states. So there's two chambers in Congress, Senate and the House, and their function and role is to present, deliberate, and vote on laws that are going to apply to all of the 50 states uh, equally at a federal level. And in order to have a piece of legislation pass, a majority of the members of the House must approve through voting, and then the President of the United States, who's the chief executive, has to sign off on that piece of legislation. Now, on the other side, the Supreme Court. It's, the Supreme Court is an entirely different branch with an entirely different role and function. The Supreme Court's the highest office of the judicial branch, and it's made up of appointed members who have lifetime tenures. So the role and the function of the Supreme Court is to hear the cases that are brought by the people and deem whether the laws passed by those politicians, whether federal or state laws, are in congruence with the rights of the people that are connect, uh, congruent with, or the rights of the people that are stated enumerated, protected by the Constitution of the United States. So in other words, if a citizen feels that the government has overridden their rights and that have been given to them in the Constitution, then those grievances are addressed in court. And those cases that are really, really contentious, they make their way up to the Supreme Court. And, and I know this is like the schoolhouse rock version, but it'll do for our purposes. That's kind of what the differences of the two branches are. And, and really to highlight, the legislative branch makes laws the judicial branch interprets and rules on what is legal, or interprets and makes rulings on the law. And this is really key. 
So the Supreme Court justices, they're not elected by the people. It's the only branch that they're not elected by the people. They're appointed by the President of the United States after a nomination process, and then they're voted on by the Senate when a vacancy on the court arises. So this is why there's been a lot of political upheaval in the last administration, because you know there, was three, there were three uh, Supreme Court justices uh, appointed by President Donald Trump, and then the Senate was able to confirm those appointees. And so these officials that are Supreme Court justices are in an effect a very unique office because they don't actually they are not beholden to uh, electors or they're not a, beholden to citizenry's votes and there's a reason for that it was a choice by the founders that was developed in part to protect the judges from being swayed by political opinion in regard to their constitutional rulings so this is key this was a decision made by the founders to protect the minority in our society from being subjected to the majority mob rule if they decide to disregard the constitutional rights. So in the end, the responsibility of the court is to be a body of just and honest citizens who seek to uphold the rights that have been given to the people by God and not government. And that's what our founding documents described as inalienable and fundamental rights that have been given to us by God. So that's really key in our constitutional republic. It's that we have been given rights by God. Government is set out to protect those rights. So there's not like in other forms of government where the government decides upon rights and then issues them out and doles them out to the citizenry. No, in our constitution, God gives the rights and we seek to protect those rights that God gives. So now this brings us to the constitution. What What is it? Why does it matter so much? Again, forgive me if this is all just obvious, but the preamble of the constitution says, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States of America. So the Constitution was a document developed by the founders and its whole purpose to set out to form a union among the various states by basically being a guidebook, rule book setting out the parameters and rules that would govern the country in its effort to protect individual liberty while also maintaining and establishing justice among the people. So the Constitution superseded in 1788 when it was ratified the Articles of the Confederation, which prior to that had been in effect, but you know we'll get to that in a second. Now this is key to understanding our country as a whole, and in particular the national controversy of Roe v. Wade in 1973 because the United States is a constitutional republic. The 50 states are united in common agreement under the authority of this document, the Constitution, and it stands as the final authority in all, all disputes. So it's been handed down to the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court might interpret that document and that their rulings would then be handed down to the people in accordance with it. So in order for the United States to be formed, all of the states, all the 50 states, had to come together. They had to agree to sign this constitution, and that was no small feat. The people had just won their independence from Great Britain. They weren't keen on giving too much power to the federal government. But since they had just experienced the effects of tyranny firsthand, they were really uh, reticent to sign any documents about really consolidated power. But there was still an issue, and that issue was without a federal government, the states were left vulnerable to future wars, future attacks, outside forces. And so the Constitution gave specific and limited authority to the federal government while providing all the other authority to the states. And most importantly, 
it spelled out in detail the rights of citizens that ought not be infringed upon by the government, whether state or federal. So, if a person felt or feels like the government's overstepped those limitations, the redress of their grievance was always found in the court system, obviously through voting as well with the legislator, but in this case with the court system, and as it moves up through the appeal process to the Supreme Court when necessary. So, all of that is to say there's a distinction between federal and state law and governance. And these distinctions were never meant to be seen as, you know, how we see them today, which is kind of junior varsity and varsity. So, like, the federal government's, you know, the big time, while the states are kind of the training ground for the higher office, the big time. But that's that's a big mistake because, you know, we make this mistake because a lot of politicians start at the state level and they move to the federal level. But what's really true in the law is that the federal government can only rule where it's been delegated with the power to do so by the Constitution. And every other matter is left up to the states for deliberation legislation and execution of their own laws and the founders put this in place because that way people in the states didn't become so distanced from the process of laws that they became disgruntled and disaffected and ultimately the union would break up so the whole system's created to work properly and provide the you've heard this you know many times the checks and balances to power and it balances one another out and the whole point is so that power doesn't get consolidated too much in one place okay now that may have been just Totally obvious, but it's important to where we're going. In the decision of Roe v. Wade, the legal controversy that ensued was rooted in one major argument. The High Court, the Supreme Court, had overstepped its constitutional power by inventing a right, quote-unquote, from whole cloth that was not actually spelled out in the Constitution. So rather than interpreting the document itself, the justices, in their 7-2 decision in 1973, had superimposed words on the Constitution that never existed, and in doing so, they took the role of the legislative branch, the legislator, for themselves, and thus they trampled the rights of the 50 states to legislate their own territory through the laws that were to be put in place by their own elected representatives. So the ruling handed down in 1973, uh, based on their decision, was because of, quote, a right to privacy in the 9th and 14th Amendment. And this sounds reasonable at first glance. It's like, okay, we're all good for that, especially in a big tech censorship time and, and uh, big tech culture. I think we'd all agree that we, we like the idea of privacy. But here's the only problem with that ruling. There's no mention of, quote, right to privacy or abortion in the 9th Amendment, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, or anywhere else in the Constitution. So this right was completely invented through crafty interpretive methods by the justices in the Roe v. Wade decision to justify the overreach of states' rights, which coincidentally is actually spelled out particularly in the Constitution in the Tenth Amendment. Quote, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Close quote. So simply put, the argument and controversy over Roe v. Wade in 1973 at a legal level was that the Supreme Court had overridden the enumerated rights of the state of Texas to legislate its own territory in regard to the life of the unborn child in the womb. So the ruling should have been that the state has the right to make its own laws in according with its elected representatives and the votes that they cast in the state legislature, and that the Supreme Court has no right to say whether or not they can do that. Now, the decision of whether or not it should be legal or le illegal for mothers to terminate a pregnancy for any reason wasn't a, a Supreme Court decision to make. It was a, it, was a, it was a decision for each individual state body, 
because it puts people closer to their elected representatives in their locale and they have the opportunity to make their voices heard through voting and speaking to their representatives. So this brings us to the decision that came down last Friday. There's been a lot of commentary and frankly just misinformed infor- like propaganda, honestly, that's been swirling around the internet in the last few months because if you remember... About a month ago, there was a leak on the Supreme Court, unprecedented, a leak of Justice Alito's rough draft of the decision, and this kind of created the uproar, an expectation that Roe was about to be overturned, and so this, there's been a lot running around about what this means, and I want to really get down into the, the details here. So, the ruling by a 5-4 majority of the Supreme Court was in favor last Friday of overturning the precedent set by Roe v. Wade and returning the issue of the legality of abortion to each of the 50 states and their legislators. So, to be clear, the ruling did not make abortion illegal. Now, I'm not telling you my personal uh, feeling about that or my theological opinion. We're going to get to that in a moment, but that's not what this ruling did. The ruling on Friday sent the issue of abortion back to the state level to be voted upon by the state legislators and until that time, kicked the laws that were on the books in each of the 50 states back into effect. So you have now the states ruling their own states as it was properly intended. And the Supreme Court Justice, they made this clear in their ruling. Listen to this. This is from Justice Alito, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong and on a collision course with the Constitution since the day it was decided. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy words. It was on a collision course with the Constitution since the day it was decided. He's saying that this was always going to come back to the Constitution, whether or not we're going to rule by it. Okay, he goes on. For the first 185 years after the adoption of the Constitution, each state was permitted to address this issue in accordance with the views of its citizens. But then, in 1973, this court, he's talking about the Supreme Court, decided that Roe v. Wade, even though the uh, the Constitution makes no mention of abortion, the court held that it confers a broad right to obtain one. It did not claim that the American law or that the common law had ever recognized such a right, and its survey of history ranged from the constitutionally irrelevant to the plainly incorrect. After cataloging a wealth of other information, having no bearing on the meaning of the Constitution, the Roe v. Wade opinion concluded with a numbered set of rules much like those that might be found in a statute enacted by a legislator. Close quote. Okay. Now that's a searing indictment of the majority opinion in 1973, but I really want to focus on the last line here. Alito says... That after deeming abortion a constitutional right, the Supreme Court went on to give a numbered set of rules. So the Supreme Court is supposed to rule upon whether something is legal or not, but the Supreme Court went further and basically laid out a set of rules, and he says it looked, quote, something like what might be found in a statute enacted by a legislator, close quote. Now that's a key phrase, and it's a phrase that he didn't accidentally write. Whatever you may believe about the justices who made the decision on Friday about their religious views, their moral views, The decision that was made public on Friday was not made on moral grounds. Well, I I want to say it's not, they weren't made on religious grounds. At the end of the day, the way that you interpret the Constitution is always going to be moral because we're moral beings. But what I'm saying is that Alito's decision is simply an issue of law. Alito makes it clear he believed the Supreme Court had overstepped their authority in 1973 and that the court must overturn that decision to maintain constitutional integrity and return the power that was usurped on the issue of abortion back to the states. So, quote, 
In Roe, this is Alito again speaking, the court short-circuited the democratic process by closing it to the large number of Americans who disagreed with Roe and closed the opportunity for citizens to persuade elected representatives to adopt policies in keeping with their views, close quote. So again, Alito's just pointing out here that by the Supreme Court usurping the role of the legislator, they cut out half the country from the democratic process, that no one could actually make their voices heard, that states that have a wide majority that disagree with abortion could basically had to accept that now, because the Supreme Court had acted as a super legislator, they had to accept the ruling. And he said this is not legal or right. Now, some detractors of Friday's uh, ruling claim that by, by overruling precedent like this in the Roe v. Wade decision, that it questions the legitimacy of the court. And the argument is that the justices brought their own moral and conservative views to bear on the ruling, and this, thus they've damaged the court's reputation. But it seems to me on the contrary. It seems to me that this decision solidifies the legitimacy of the court, because by ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court has chosen specifically to limit its own power by giving the issue back over to the states. And that's something that we should take note of. Very rarely do powerful people give away power back to the people once it's been taken. And that's what happened on Friday. And and, and this seems to be in line with what the founders originally intended. And, and now, it should be noted that the minor minority in 1973, the two justices that dissented in 1973, they also knew that the judges, the Supreme Court, had overreached. They write down in their dissent that, quote, this was an exercise of raw judicial power, which gives us the indication they knew exactly what was going on here. Now, you might be asking, listen, court, why should we even care about this? You're getting into the minutia of, you know, the political realm, legal, what, what's all this? Shouldn't we just pray, you know, we're Christians and let the chips fall where they may? Well, first I want to say it's important to understand that what was said on Friday from the Supreme Court um, and what was not said on Friday... On the, on the Supreme Court is is being muddled. And if we don't understand all the facts, then we all become prey to our own predisposed reactions. And what ends up happening, and this is Christians and non-Christians, we let emotions rule the day. So secondarily, most of us understand that our religious practices, so being Christians, along with our everyday lives, if we're honest, they are greatly affected by political outcomes like this one. So, you know, politics and society are... are you know, not exactly fun to get engaged with, but they are realities. Now, however, politics and society are also impacted by religious views, so it works both ways, uh, and the issues of worldview, because lawmakers are elected by people, and those people have ideas about how the world works and how it ought to work. So this works in both ways. You know, politics are going to affect us, but listen, our Christianity is going to affect politics because people's worldview affects... You're dealing with people. Everyone has beliefs, and so... Fundamentally, those ideas make up their worldview, how they think the world works and how it ought to work, and that will always be uh, impacted, and it'll also be related to worship. Now, my point in saying all that is we cannot merely step aside and leave these kind of big questions unconsidered, unanswered, undiscussed, uh, because they, they do matter. Now, I want to make it this clear. I'm not under the conviction that the government should be seeking to compel religious belief or that Christians should be advocating for that. And, and the reason for that is really simple. The Bible doesn't give us the indication that true faith is something that can be compelled by man in a saving way. So that's that's moot, right? 
However, we mustn't be under the impression that Christians ought to be excluded, whether it's by choice or compulsion, from the public square of politics either. This is a confusion that's happened in the church that needs to be addressed. It's a confusion of freedom of religion with freedom from religion. Now, sometimes we get those mixed up, and, and they're, it's, it's very subtle, but, but it's a very important distinction. When we say, hey, we want to have freedom of religion, or that's what our Constitution stands for, we're not saying that that means that the political realm will be free from religion. And, and, and nor should we want that, because we do not wish that any people at any time or at any place be free from Christianity. It's the hope of the world. And so it should be our deepest desire that more and more Christians are influenced by Christ, who is the king, so that they might make just laws, execute those just laws, make rulings on those just laws, because that would lead to human flourishing, and that's what we care about. Now, secondarily, the church is called to be a prophetic voice in the culture, and, and not just the culture at large, but in politics, because politics are included in that culture. And so we all have a vested interest in the structure and function of our society, not only because we're going to be impacted, but because our neighbors, whom God has called us to love and reach with the gospel, will also be impacted. And so, as a for instance, if murder were to be made legal tomorrow, it would have significant impacts on all our families and all the lives of those around us. And in that case, the church should not only stand against that and speak up for those innocent lives, it must do that. It must do that. Because... All of the lives that will be snuffed out by an unjust ruling like making murder legal should be something that the church speaks prophetically against. If not the church, then who? Who is going to be speaking up for that? Inversely, so on the other side, if a judge were to make a ruling that an innocent man who was wrongly accused of murder must be set free, the church should celebrate and praise God for that decision and be grateful that that judge was a righteous ruler in that sense. So this cuts both ways, but the point is that it matters. As another example, Christians should care most deeply about issues regarding religious freedom in the United States. The U.S. has been a, you know, had the greatest history of sending more missionaries around the world than any other country over the centuries. And this has only been possible because we've had the legal protection by the providence of God that has permitted the free exercise of Christianity. And what that's done for us, it has made, us, it, has made it possible for us to preach, to teach, to baptize, to disciple, to train, to send missionaries all over the world so that the gospel can be preached to all the nations so that people can hear the message of eternal life that's offered to them in Christ. We could not do that apart from those blessings of liberty. Now, we worship every single Sunday morning. We preach every Sunday morning. We pray openly every Sunday morning. We do this publicly. We do it freely. Now, how do we do it? And what, you know, Would we do it anyway? Of course, because it's obedience to God. But how can we do it so freely without concern. We do it freely and without concern because we're under the protection of laws that were instituted long ago. And the question that we ought to ask ourselves as Christians is, should we not be invested in understanding how and why those laws came to be? And ought we not do everything that we can to see that those laws are, are upheld for the sake of our children and our children's children? So what this does is this doesn't cause a uh, call for all Christians to be overtly political, no, but to be overly Christian and to be wise and prudent when considering political issues. Christ's kingdom and the ongoing advancement of it is our primary concern, but still we have to reject the apathy and the laziness toward the political realm because politics impacts all people, which includes us, 
and it deserves the prayerful engagement to the glory of God that is necessary. So, in the case of the latest news out of the Supreme Court, I believe that we ought to celebrate on two fronts. Number one, the rule of just law was upheld. As Christians who hold to the doctrine of sin, we understand the dangers of tyranny and how those dangers evolve from the base impulses of man. So I want you to think, namely, the craving that man has for power and how the Bible constantly, over and over again, gives us the inclination and the truth that because man has been corrupted by sin, there is a predisposition towards that, towards that craving for power that enslaves mass populations of people. We see this in Egypt. We see it with Babylonian captivity. You know, Israel's freedom was it was the the exception, not the rule in the Old Testament. You know, you see it later with the Roman occupation of Jerusalem and G during Jesus' day, and this has been the rule over the course of human history. And so, because we understand that as Christians, we should, we should celebrate when the rule of just law is upheld, and we should celebrate the upholding of constitutional provisions for states' rights because they're a necessary check on the predations of larger governmental bodies who often historically wield power without restraint. So we got to celebrate that and say, hey, whatever you may believe about, you know, the rulings that come down, when power is not, when a ruling comes down that does not consolidate power more into the hands of one, that should be a celebration. Number two, this is a big step toward protecting the lives of thousands, thousands, maybe millions of unborn children. And that brings me to my next primary consideration, which is up until this point, so we've, we've covered the legal side of this, which I hope you see. At the end of the day, what the Supreme Court has done in the ruling that came down last Friday is not bring a moral word on abortion, but instead simply kick it back to the states to now, through the elections of their representatives, decide on if it's moral or immoral, Okay. And what I want to do is I want to go into that question theologically. What about the moral question of abortion? The current political and cultural climate rarely gives space or time for the kind of measured consideration that we're going to give to abortion in this episode. So I want to start by saying we have to reject the emotionally charged, highly politicized rhetoric that seeks to wrestle us away from careful and prayerful consideration of a, of a moral issue that's this important. Paul told the Corinthians, put on the mind of Christ, and nothing less is going to do for us if we're going to wade into these waters. So please do that with me as we, as we talk a little bit, and, I, and I'm going to speak frankly about this. Much of the Protestant and evangelical world was caught flat-footed in 1973 when the Roe v. Wade's decision came down. Most people were absolutely flummoxed by the sweeping changes that they were seeing happen all over the country in the wake of the news. Many pastors, many theologians were sent scrambling to look to the scripture for guidance as to how they should respond, and they knew that nothing less than a clear and compelling case from the scripture about the life of unborn children was going to suffice to mobilize the body of Christ to do what needed to be done. They needed to pray, they needed to seek change to the law, they needed to they needed to rally people together uh, to to protest, to care, to stand outside of abortion clinics, to try and care for women that were coming in and 
and if there wasn't a clear biblical conviction, then it wasn't gonna. This wasn't gonna stick. And so, in the wake of the Roe v. Wade decision, the pro-life movement's born. Now, I need to make mention that some people track this movement all the way back to the 1930s, but very few people would argue that it really grew its legs in 1973. So, the theological underpinning of the pro-life movement was adopted on the basis of, believe it or not. Uh, historically Catholic understanding of what is called the sanctity of human life. So in Catholic doctrine, quote, human life is sacred because from its beginning it involves the creative action of God, and it remains forever in a special relationship with the Creator, who is its sole end. God alone is the Lord of life from the beginning to the end. No one can understand circumstances any, no one can, under any circumstance, claim for himself the right to directly destroy an innocent human being. Close quote. Now, this has been in Catholic doctrine for centuries, but of course it's also implied in the Westminster Shorter Catechism with things like, you know, what is our only hope in life and death, that we, bo- that we are not our own, but we belong to God, body and soul? Um, so, so that's kind of the fundamentals of where the pro-life movement got its legs. Why is it that we say that an unborn life is worthy of protection? Well, because we find it in the scriptures. God gives life. Now let's talk a little bit about this. How can we get the conviction that God has given life in the womb? Well, Genesis 1, 26, of course, one of the most famous verses in the Bible tells us that God made man in his own image. He said, let us make man after our own image and likeness. Male and female, he created them. In Psalm 139, verse 13, it teaches us that we are fearfully, wonderfully made in the womb by God. In Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 5, Jeremiah claims that God knew him and formed him in his mother's womb for a specific calling and purpose. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah proclaims, Hear me, O coastlands, and listen, O distant peoples. The Lord called me from birth, from my mother's womb he gave me my name. Of course, the doctrine of the Incarnation was also a major factor with the early church recognizing the sanctity of human life in the womb. you got to understand, the early church, in Roman rule during their day, the Romans claimed that babies did not become full human citizens with rights until they were recognized by the head of their family. And so things like abortion were not a big deal because they weren't fully human citizens yet. But the doctrine of the Incarnation caused the early church to defy this ruling. If Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, then the personhood of human beings from conception had to be affirmed by the early church disciples. No one would dare question whether Jesus was a living person in the womb of Mary. And of course, it's not just that. It's that this was confirmed when Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, and Mary approaches Elizabeth in her household, And the Bible records that in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, who was being formed, leapt for joy, quote, leapt for joy in the womb of his mother as he recognized that he was in the presence of his Savior, who was in the womb of his Aunt Mary. So both John and Jesus are given personhood. They are living persons in the text in John. And no one has disputed this fact since the early church. We have more than that, of course, though. You know, God affirmed to Noah the importance and the dignity and sanctity of human life uh, in Genesis chapter 9 after he gets off the, the ark. And God says that from now on he will require blood for blood if any man take the life of another. 
Not only must life be deemed sacred, God says, but there must be justice enacted when a life is taken through killing. And so in order to preserve life, God enacts this law with Noah to curtail the sinful proclivities of mankind. Now this pattern continues throughout the Old Testament. Israel is given law through Moses. It includes laws concerning, for instance, pregnant women who miscarry due to physical harm done to them, like pushing them down. Now, pop culture's narrative is that children are to, seen, are to be seen mostly in economic terms. And they are to be seen mostly, as of now, as potential hindrances for women. But the Bible stands in complete and utter opposition to this. Children are exclaimed in the scriptures as, quote, blessings from the Lord, and are to be received as one of the earth's greatest, one of God's greatest earthly gifts. Um, it bestows, God bestows upon families the gift of children, as an act of great grace. And Jesus doubles down on this. If you remember the story of Jesus rebuking his disciples as they tried to shoo the children away, and Jesus says, No, let the children come to me. Far from being a hindrance to the Lord Jesus Christ, he called them to himself. So in totality, the scripture is clear about the sanctity and the dignity of human life, and God's desire that we would, that we would protect life, even at great cost to ourselves. Now, Many well-intended Christians for 50 years have struggled to frame the issue of abortion as evil. Various complicated scenarios of pregnancy shroud the issue, but nothing haunts the minds of many people more than the fear of being called sexist or bigoted or misogynistic or patriarchal. At least not currently. This is something that just shrouds everyone's minds and everyone's afraid of being called that. After all, we have been reliably told for decades that abortion is an issue of women's rights, and any argument to the contrary is the result of patriarchal tendencies and that was rooted in us from our you know, childhood psyche. So, I just want to make mention, this rhetoric has done more to silence faithful Christians who clearly see God's design in the Bible and God's calling in the scriptures to protect all of life, but this has done more to silence them than perhaps anything else. Now, the question I want to ask is, is that rhetoric true? Is it true? that to stand against abortion, that it's because you're a misogynist? Is it true that you're just a patriarchal, um, bigoted dude? Well, first, I think the statistics wouldn't bear that out. There's many, many more pro-life women. They're much more active than men. Uh, but I want to talk about this uh, faithfully because uh, obviously I am a man and I'm talking about this issue, but I want to, I want to talk about it frankly. It's impossible to understand or discuss the topic of abortion, faithfully and biblically, without addressing the underlying problem, which is the societal rejection of the nuclear family. God's design for mothers and fathers to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis was not just a blanket stamp of approval for sexual intercourse, but it was a clear command given by God that gave us a blueprint. By framing the birth of children in the context of a loving union of marriage between one man and one woman before God, God gave us a clear instruction as to how children ought to be born, reared, and raised under his design and lordship. So in the years preceding and succeeding the Roe v. Wade decision, the state of the nuclear family had begun to fray in the United States. Now, regardless of what your opinion is about the founding of America, its Christian heritage, uh, one would be hard-pressed to deny that the country was formed and shaped heavily by the teachings of the Bible, and that the institution of the nuclear family was not an exception to this fact. I mean, it is at the center. The idea that children would ideally be born into a family with one mother and one father who were covenant, 
covenanted together in holy matrimony of marriage. It was a notion widely held in the United States, and I would even propose that it still holds heavy prominence in our country. Now, it's no coincidence that the rise of popularity in Darwinian theory that began in the early 20th century also produced a direct confrontation with the nuclear family, generally, and sexuality in particular. So, it kind of goes something like this. If Darwin is right, and it's true that we're not created by God, who made us in his own image and likeness, then it follows that the outdated institutions like marriage or family can be relegated to just one option among many if you're a civilized and enlightened people. So, I mean, after all, if we're highly evolved animals, then there's no meaningful distinction between us. Then why should we be subjected to things like monogamy? There's no moral element to something like monogamy. Animals aren't committed to one mate for their whole life, are they? I mean, I mean there may be penguins or something, but uh, as a rule, no. Now, I want to say perhaps no two groups were more harmed, I mean, more profoundly harmed by this ideology taking root than women and children. It only takes a cursory consideration of such a devastating claim like Darwin's to predict its outcome. Despite the framing of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s as the, quote, emancipation of women, the effects have been the exact opposite. So for thousands of years, when men rejected God's design for marriage and indulged in their base desire for multiple partners, the result was promiscuous sex without restraint and cultural decline. However, if women engaged in the, in the exact same behavior... The result was not the exact same, yet it was predictable by God's design. The result was single motherhood without the protection and support that the nuclear family provides. Now, where obedience to God's design would have left no room for such a tragedy in the world, we obviously know that sin is in the world and therefore it's a reality, and the worldly system had an entirely different idea. Rather than come back to God, they decided, hey, let's figure something else out. Abortion, in most cases is mankind's rebellious response to being unwilling to accept God's design for humanity. So rather than repent and return to God, we choose to add more tragedy on top of tragedy. Rather than marrying and committing to one another to raise a child, abortion is the choice to snuff out that human life that was created by God in order to return to our own desires and our own design for life with impunity. Now, I want to make mention of this. The most egregious element of abortion has always been that which goes almost unaddressed, and that is the violation that occurs upon an unborn child. Unborn children in the womb represent the most defenseless and vulnerable among us. If there were ever a voiceless, defenseless party in the abortion argument, it's the unborn child whose life is taken away with no regard for their future, no regard for their dreams, as it were. Much is spoken about about the dreams that are being preserved through abortion for the mother or for the dad. or But no one speaks about the child. Or if they do, they get shushed up. They get hushed down. Now, my mention of God's design for marriage and our societal rejection of the nuclear family as an ideal, as an ideal context for childbearing, my purpose to, to even mention that is not to shame anyone who's listening right now whose life hasn't turned out that way. I mean, there's a ton of single moms, dads that can't help but feel a pang in their soul when I discuss something like this. But I want you to hear me. My point is not aimed at divorcees or single parents. 
or any other situation or circumstance that's led to something other than the nuclear family. That's not my aim. My aim here is to say there is inarguable statistical evidence that most abortion cases since Roe v. Wade have not been extraordinary cases that are often brought up, but simple acts of convenience that were deemed personal and private decisions. And my aim is to say that we must acknowledge that the rejection of God's design for the family, monogamy, sexuality, within the confines of the marriage covenant, has led to that rise. There's, there's no other way for us to, to read it or to see it. If we don't see where things went off track, how are we ever going to solve the problem? So, so I just want to say that as an aside. This is not an attack on any one person. This is more so an attack of a cultural degradation of rejecting God, which we all have a part to play in. Now, the evidence is really there. The secularization and all our modern institutions have been rejecting God in Scripture without blushing for decades, and it's led us to where we are today. Theories like Darwinianism, Freudianism, gender theory, etc., they've provided an intellectual basis for rejecting God and His Word so that institutions of higher education, medicine, media, entertainment, corporations could sear their conscience by buying into the lie that they were sold by the very professors that they heaped up for themselves to tickle their ears and give them the approval to pursue their own desires. And the result has become an American society that has done more to promote the killing of the unborn than any other nation in history. Entertainers and influencers have done a spectacular job rooting out any vestige of the nuclear family as something to be desired or pursued from our modern psyche. And this all lays the groundwork for the framing of the argument in, of abortion in terms of, quote, personal reproductive rights of women. Meanwhile, it completely ignores the unborn life that's at stake. In former generations, the child would have been at the forefront of considerations for all families. And for much of American history, it was true of us too. I would say that it's still true of most today, and yet... We've decided to have the cognitive dissonance to say for a few that doesn't have to be true. Um, but every mother and father who are covenanted together under God inherently understand their responsibility to protect their children as a primary responsibility, a fundamental responsibility. If you fail there, you fail everywhere. And we still have laws on the books that reflect this, right? No matter how hard a person tries, the innate and God-given inclination to protect children is still prominently on display in our culture. But another thing that's prominently on display is the degradation of the family unit. And, and what that has left, what that has resulted in, is it's left children, born and unborn, vulnerable to predation. With no responsible party, no divinely ordained party like a mother and father to protect children from harm, who is there to protect children from harm? Well, the world has said, well, the government can step in, we can fill the gap. But listen to me, what happens when the government does not recognize an unborn child as a human being? Who protects them? And I think the answer must be, and I've become increasingly convinced, it must be Christians in the church. Now, much of the current argument for abortion rights comes under the banner of a woman's right to choose. And, as discussed, Christian women understand and receive joyfully their duty to protect and recognize the life that exists within their bodies during pregnancy. Now, scientific advances have shown that very early on in pregnancy, babies not only have distinct bodies, but they feel pain and physically repel intrusions 
that could inflict pain on their bodies like needles or medical instruments. They will literally pull back. Now, the argument, at least theologically, is not whether a woman has a right to choose what to do with her own body. In my opinion, the argument of abortion is whether or not a woman will choose to act in the best interest of the distinct life and body of her child, which is growing in her womb. That's the question. And this brings me to what's been deemed the war on women. Now, I believe there is a war on women, but it's not the war being spouted from the halls of academia or pop culture. This war is not a war against the rights of women, but it's a war against the God-given and unique design of women. And in order for us to understand it, we have to do a little bit of work in history. When the United States entered the war in 1941 after the attack of Pearl Harbor, the United States had a massive problem on its hands. If so many able-bodied men were going to go to war, who would there be to work in the factories to produce the necessary goods to keep society running and to get the weapons necessary for the war across the sea? The National Archives of the United States government records this about World War II by saying, quote, with men off to fight a worldwide war across the Atlantic and the Pacific, women were called to take their place on the production line. The War Manpower Commission, a federal agency established to increase the manufacture of war materials, had the task of recruiting women into the employment vital to the war effort. Close quote. So up until this point, women played really just a small part in the industrialized workforce, and in order to defeat the encroaching evil of Nazi Germany, thousands of women stepped in to help the war effort, and you know, one only has to look back at the advertisements of that day to see just how important this was to the overall end of World War II. You know, after the defeat of the Axis powers, the companies and corporations now, uh, they've seen how productive American society could be with both men and women in the workforce, and then they asked themselves a big question. On the one hand, you had a lot of people die, a lot of men die, and they need to increase the birth rate, so th they need for women to go back uh, you know, home to have babies, quote-unquote, which is the argument of the abortion side, and you do see a baby boom, right? But there's another question that's never talked about, and that question was very obvious. Hey, we're really productive with men and women in the workforce. Like, we, our economy booms. Why not build a society that could be doubly productive with men and women in the workforce? And so that was part of an issue. Now, the cultural narrative from the 50s post-war is one of women feeling disaffected by their husbands as they returned from war and they were shoved back into uh, the work uh, back back into their place at home while men were taking their jobs again right and there's books like the feminine mystique written by Betty Friedan it gained wide popularity in the early 60s and expressed um, you know it, it had an expressed purpose which was to undermine the traditional family and particularly frame the narrative that women who embraced motherhood outside of the workplace were victims of male oppression um, you can go read some of the quotes from Betty Friedan. There's, there's some that are just shocking. But ultimately, the women's liberation movement that ensued focused heavily on male domination, patriarchal society of the U.S. Uh, that's the primary evil we have to discard. But what it ignored was the obvious benefits that major corporations, the economy, the government, um, all, all were gaining by doubling the workforce in a post-war Cold War society. So I want to make this clear. My intention here is not to make an argument against women in the workplace. I mean, my wife has a job. She does a rather great job at it. Um, she did, she's really uh, amazing. Um, here's my aim. My aim is to provide the context for the rise of abortion as a, quote, woman's right to choose and to disclose the societal and institutional powers that sought to profit off of women for this. So in, as an example, in 2021, Planned Parenthood recorded $1.6 billion in their yearly income, 
$1.6 billion as the nation's largest abortion provider. They amassed on average almost 1,000 abortions per day in the nation. I think it was like average of 967. Now I want you to think of those numbers. Many of Planned Parenthood's largest abortion facilities were strategically placed in low-income areas to prey upon young mothers who feared going through with a childbirth without the help or the resources necessary. These are all just facts. You can look where they're placed. Now this dollar amount, $1.6 billion, billion, that does not include the black market sales that investigatory journalists have uncovered Planned Parenthood is making. Now if you have children in the car, I want to just warn you, this is a little graphic, but I'll try to, be as, I'll try to spare the graphic details, but there is a journalist organization that uncovered in a video that there's black market sales of baby parts to medical laboratories. The video recording shows an in-depth conversation between Planned Parenthood executives and journalists who are posing as medical lab techs negotiating prices for various fetal tissue and human baby organs that were preserved post-abortion of women. Whether, they know, whether these women knew or not, we don't know. But that's the kind of industry that's been created and it's big business. Now, I could go on for hours about the financial incentive that's been created to propagate abortion, but I just want to say this because we started with the design for women uniquely to be able to birth babies. I want to say this. With a sleight of hand, women have been robbed of seeing family and children as a fundamental joy that God intended. Slowly, the family has been moved from the primary focus and pursuit of both men and women to just one joy among many. And then, from one joy among many, it's been moved to well, family's a necessary burden women have to choose to overcome to pursue their real dreams. And then it moved from that to finally the moment where we're in now where framing motherhood and family, we are framing motherhood and family as simply a social construct that's in need of demolition, that you don't really have to have that, that you, could, you don't even need any of these things in your life. And I want to say that because it's no mystery as to why the words women and mothers have been slowly erased from political speech. They've been replaced by words like birthing persons or people with wombs. And I'm not kidding. This is on the house floor now. And why is that? Well, because in many ways this is not about an emancipation of women, but it's an enslavement. The real morally repugnant fact of our era is not that women became more active in the workplace. No. The morally repugnant fact of our era is that the institution of family in general and the lives of children in particular have been deemed a necessary and celebrated sacrifice on the altar of personal achievement and success and not, I, listen, and, and not even primarily by individuals, but this has been led by people that are very powerful. Now, simultaneously, there's been a political advantage that's been gained by pitting men against women, fathers against mothers. Have you ever wondered why the gender war has heated up so vociferously? This, this is why, okay? Now, by the time I was born in the 80s, it was a real common trope uh, that women who raised children at home were the ones that, you know, they couldn't make it in the marketplace. Now, no one would say this. No one dared shame motherhood when I was growing up. But there was always this underlying tension. And soon the political strategy began to shift. The government began to enact laws that would make it more seamless for women to enter the workplace without the, quote, burden that children brought to the equation. By the late 2000s, the issue of abortion had made a drastic turn. 
you know, what was once an option for women that was tragic but necessary, you know, remember the safe, legal, and rare option? Now it had taken on a new life. If being pregnant with a child hindered a woman's progression in the workplace, abortion was not only viable to a viable option for career success, but it was a necessary one to take. I mean, after all, the greater good was, was women being in the economic sphere, not being at home, wasting their talents on kids. This was what was constantly pushed. And so the advent of our political age with abortion now as a celebrated right rather than a tragic option, it really shouldn't shock us. It was the natural progression in a long line of proactive measures taken by people in power in order to profit from it. So you see today, marches happen all across the country with posters that say things like, quote, shout your abortion. Speeches are given from women who recount their multiple abortions as, quote, the most liberating and wonderful experiences of their lives. Now, I just want to make mention, you know, what's lost in all the shouting is simple, but it's profound. Who is shouting about the joy of motherhood without being deemed a sexist? You know, who is shouting openly about the lives of thousands, millions of unborn children that get snuffed out without even a thought? Who's shouting about that without being castigated as an evil oppressor? Now, in the middle of preparing this episode, um, because it took me a few days, I, you know, I turned on the news and I just so happened to see a, an episode that was airing by MSNBC. And, and to be honest, I was shocked when I heard uh, some of the quotes here that were so brazen. But it bears mentioning so that no one thinks I'm just a, again, patriarchal, conspiratorial crazy, you know. After the decision last Friday, multiple companies have come out, corporations have come out, defying the ruling, announcing it as awful, and that they will provide their female employees that are seeking an abortion in uh, restrictive states. They'll provide them with travel fees. And so you got... For instance, like a Dick Sporting Goods, they said, we'll give you $4,000 to go have an abortion in another state if you want to, if you're a female employee of ours. And so um, the news was covering this, and, and there was a couple quotes that really stood out to me, and I just wanted to I wanted to read them to you because they kind of make the point. Well, not kind of. They do make the point that I've been making. This is the first quote. Quote, many economists are saying that the economic consequences of abortion restrictions will be devastating for wider society. State-level abortion restrictions will cost $105 billion per year by reducing the labor force, participation, and earning levels, and increasing turnover and time off from workers among ages 15 to 44 years old, close quote. Now, when I heard that, I thought, okay, that's, you know, good information, but it was very subtle. This is being framed as the main thing we should consider are not the lives that would be saved, with the 95 to 96% of abortions that happen because of written down convenience, that's, that's asked questions of why are you having this abortion just because. No one's saying, hey, we should consider all the lives that will be saved. The question is, man, this is really going to be tough on the economy. We're not going to make as much money. Okay, the next quote. Uh, the big question is if the birthing parent is able to travel. They will need to rely on their employer for the financial support to carry that out. Listen to this. These companies are willing to pay for their employees for ab abortion, not just because of their philosophy as a corporation, but because it makes financial sense for them. Close quote. Now, that's key. Why are corporations all about this? Well, this, this uh, MSNBC reporter who talked to multiple CEOs admitted that the company's decision has nothing to do with whether they think abortion is right or wrong, but only to do with how much cheaper it is to pay for an abortion than it is to ups, 
up a woman's health care coverage or to pay for the maternity leave. Now, I, I could go on, but I call this the real war on women because women and mothers have a unique and divine calling from God. And it's not only to birth children. And yes, I believe that it is still a biological fact that only women can bear children. And that is something that makes women unique, that God created them this way. But that's not all their divine calling is. It's also to nurture and to care for children in a way that only they can. Biblically speaking, the family was always the place for all people to focus their foremost attention and care. That's men and women alike. The family was a place from which people derived their greatest joys and fulfillments. Every other endeavor was secondary, except for the worship of God, which was primary. You know, fathers and mothers, they may have gone to work, both of them, but all of it was to provide for what? For who? Well, of course, the children who cannot provide for and to protect themselves, of course. And so all of this is to say that the narrative surrounding abortion as women's emancipation is not merely wrong, it is nefarious. When we frame it as a men versus women argument, we miss that it's a thinly veiled attack on God's design for the family in general and women in particular. It is a lie that any mother will ever be more influential or find more fulfillment in the marketplace than she will in being a mother to her children. And I don't feel ashamed saying that. Even if a woman works, and, and okay, that's great. But even if a woman works, it's simply wrong to claim that her primary fulfillment will be from that job that she holds. And this is not merely true of mothers, it's true of fathers. Fathers will not be more fulfilled in their workplace or their place of work than they will be by faithfully fathering their children. So abortion is not empowering to women. Where does a woman exert more power and influence? Is it working for a large corporation or raising the next generation of men and women who will honor and revere the Lord? Now, I think you could do both, but what's primary? You know, it's said that Mark Twain once said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And of course, I believe the hand of God rules the world, but I believe that sentiment is well taken. Is there a more powerful place for women than the influence that they have over the next generation? The transition from abortion as a tragedy that should be safe and legal and rare to an act of empowerment and emancipation, it undermines the most fundamentally influential role that women will ever play, namely being a mother. Now, I want to make the case that um, there, are, there are some who might be listening right now and say, I don't, I don't have a child. Is he saying that I'm not influential? I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I think the Bible makes pretty abundantly clear that we can draw a straight line from Eve being created as a woman and being called the mother of all living things tells us that before she had a child, this was innately in her. And you can draw a straight line from that, from the single Paul the Apostle, who speaks of being a spiritual father. And there are spiritual fathers and mothers. And then our primary call is to, is to operate in those spheres, to be spiritual fathers, be spiritual mothers, making disciples. So when I'm talking about, you know, and, and I know I'm talking about it in, in the context of abortion, that's why it has such a, a tinge to it with... Um, with birth, but but I want to make this case. I'm talking about something that's spiritually fundamental in womanhood that's being undermined. It's being undermined, and in so doing, it's robbing both men and women of the joy that God has for them. I simply want to make the case that this change in our cultural mindset, it didn't arise out of nowhere. It's the result of years of rejecting God and rejecting God's design for families and children, which is lined out in his word. 
And it's that process of spiritual degradation that led to Roe v. Wade and began long before it was announced. Okay, one last thing, and then I'm going to get into how should we respond. You may be thinking, man, Court, why are you so confident to assert that abortion is such a grave evil that Christians should oppose? I mean, why are you taking a hardline issue, black and white, not making it more nuanced? And this is something that's developed in me over the course of the last few years. Uh, and this is more personal, but in my ministry life, I, I think this is the very first time I've ever talked openly and um, and in, in a long-form format about abortion like this. And it wasn't because I shied away from it, but because up until the maybe five, six years ago, it didn't hit my radar as something that I thought was a top-tier issue. And, as I, and that is to my shame. Because as I started to consider more, if, if I... I was talking to Morgan last night, and if I were to line up all of the things that I care about politically, um, and I and I weighed them on the scales, all of the other things wouldn't compare. You know, I heard, I heard a pastor use the actual uh, use the actual analogy of the scales and say, if you put you know all of my other cares on one, and you put abortion on the other, that the 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 side with the bucket with the abortion. Uh, on its side would hit, would hit the table pretty quickly and hard. You know, I, I, I felt that viscerally. And the reason that I've started to feel that and develop that is because I'm convinced, and not only based on the historical evidence we've talked about, but mostly based on theological evidence, that this is a grave issue. It seems to me obvious that there is an element, a, an, an element of spiritual warfare, a demonic element at the very core of the abortion movement and it's become more and more evident in recent days. In the book of John chapter 8, Jesus has this showdown with the Pharisees. If you remember, the Pharisees are a politically co-opted council of elite Jews who sought to undermine Jesus' teaching and, and, and to diminish his authority. And they did this by following him around and questioning his every move. They could not bear the words of the Son of God because he spoke to them so directly about sin. He indicted them for their religious observances as mere show. And he outed them. He outed them to the public. And they hated Jesus for his candor because he threatened their status. They were a, The Pharisees were a cancer to the people. They preyed upon the people. And they did so through lies and half-truths. And so because of that, they could not bear Jesus' words. Now, in verses 43 and 45, and you can read them later, Jesus has something to say to the Pharisees. In his showdown with them, he tells them that they are of their father, the devil. That's why they can't bear to hear his words. And then he says to them something key, that he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. And that when he lies, he speaks of his own character. Now I want you to notice that Jesus unveiling the demonic forces that are at work behind the Pharisees' actions, that's something that we read commonly in the Bible, but we rarely translate it into our own day. Like, we're afraid to talk about that kind of spiritual warfare in our own day. We just say, oh, well, that's a, that's a New Testament thing. That's not really for us. But Jesus is making a key point by asserting that the Pharisees acted how they acted because they acted in accordance with the devil, who was their father. And, and I really want us to key in about these words that Jesus says about Satan. He says he's a murderer, and he's been so since the beginning. So 
This is something new. Murder is at the very heart of the satanic agenda for the world because Satan has hated image bearers from the beginning. Think about it. Satan has sought to destroy human beings at every turn with lies and deceit since the garden. Satan lies, Jesus says, because he speaks of his own character. In other words, Satan lies because he can't do anything else. It's his very nature. He lies, and his lies always have one end game, and that's the murder of God's children. Now, the reason I say this is I speak candidly about the topic of abortion, not because I believe it's going to get me some acclaim when I post this, or approval from the world, or from many who will hear me. The reason that I feel so convicted to speak candidly and openly is because I am convinced that there's a spiritual war being waged beyond our five senses. Abortion is a cleverly designed satanic scheme that has been going on for decades, and it's taken decades for it to come to its full form. I believe Satan's been laundering his lies, laundering his deceitful schemes and deceitful ideas into our minds for years. And in so doing, he has incrementally helped us justify the murder of the unborn in the womb. He's done so by following the same pattern that he used in the garden. And I want you to perk up your ears on this one, particularly ladies, if you're upset with anything I've said so far. Maybe this might help you understand why I'm so passionate about it. I believe he's done this by following the same pattern he used in the garden, by convincing us that obedience to God is ultimately an act of self-sabotage. That if we were to obey God's design, it's really God keeping us from joy, keeping us from fulfillment, because God's hoarding that for himself. And when I look at our, our narratives about what we're telling our women, our young girls, our men, that's exactly what, what's being said. If you follow God's design, you're not going to really be fulfilled. That's enslavement. But listen to me, like most tyranny and enslavement, it always begins with small compromises that may be well intended by the people who accept them, but it grows into a fully-fledged bloodlust. And that's what's happened. It cannot be quenched. It will not be stopped apart from a heavenly hand that pushes it back. In recent months, um, I've watched this unfold, but there is a religious organization that promotes the worship of Satan. They call themselves the Temple of Set. And they're pretty open. They're pretty proud. They <clears throat> post things on social media all across the nation. And they've been petitioning state and local governments across the nation for a religious exemption. And it's a religious exemption on one specific practice that they call one of their sacraments. Um, they liken it to the Christian's communion or baptism, and they say that this should be uh, exempted from any laws under the religious clause of the Constitution. And what they're asking for exemption for is abortion as sacrament. No, I am not joking about that. On June 24th, the Satanic Temple of Set posted on their social media account that the Satanic quote the Satanic Temple is the leading beacon of light in the battle for abortion. Close quote. Then they go on. They're going to call their pro-abortion supporters in a kind of demonic, twisted, evangelistic tone. They say, quote, "With Roe v. Wade overturned, a religious exem exemption will be the only viable and available challenge to many restrictions to access." Close quote. Brothers and sisters, I implore you, our battle is not against flesh and blood. 
It is my prayer that God will open our eyes to see what many generations have been blinded to for so long. The end game of abortion is not freedom for anyone. It is spiritual enslavement. Just as the Pharaoh of Egypt was motivated by Satan to compel the midwives to murder the Israelite children in the womb, our abortion mills are merely secularized and sterilized front organizations for the worst kind of evil the globe's ever seen. And it pains me to say that America has become much more efficient and productive in the snuffing out of human life than Egypt could have ever dreamed to be. We must deeply desire and fervently pray for a wholesale return and repentance to God. Because the evils that our nation has endorsed and exported all over the world require that kind of repentance. The ruling last Friday, in my opinion, is just the clearing of the way for that kind of repentance to begin. And my prayer is that it begins at the household of God. Now I want to say that there are many who may be listening to this that, well, there's extraordinary cases of pregnancy that are often cited to justify legalized abortions. There's tragic instances like, you know, incest, rape, medical issues. And there's a lot of fair-minded people that may be hearing me and they've grappled with this. And It's important to point out, of course, like I have already, that those cases are the minority and they're dwarfed by the 95% of abortions that are recorded as other or personal reasons. But nonetheless, I want to say these cases are tragic and we should take careful and prayerful consideration for them. And for the sake of time, I really do plan to address those um, extraordinary cases in another episode of the Provcast, but I've gone very long today. And what I wanted to do first here is talk about the institution itself. There are some of you who maybe you've been party to an abortion. Maybe you're a man that's listening and you have paid for an abortion or supported one. Maybe you're a woman and you've gone to get an abortion before. And everything that I've been saying is either devastating or angering to you. And I want to say with all the love of my heart that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ extends to you. Our God is a God of forgiveness. Our God is a God of loving kindness and mercy. He is abounding in steadfast love. He calls us to himself. And so everything that I've said, even as, as strongly as I have said it, I want you to know that there is nothing but mercy for you at the cross of Christ, that he forgives. That my aim this mor- or in this episode is mostly to speak candidly about that, which is obviously laid out in the Bible, and to stand for those who have no voice of their own, but also to make a call to all of us who have become seared in our consciences toward this area. And trust me, there are plenty of areas where we all need to repent, but this is one that we should care deeply about. Okay, now how should Christians respond? And I know I'm way over, but last few. There is no reason not to celebrate. We should celebrate last Friday just as the Egyptians celebrated as they went across the Red Sea and they were free there's many children that will have the freedom of life we should celebrate that as the horse and rider is thrown into the sea number two I believe that we should keep the end game in mind for the Christian the Great Commission 
is the end game. I want to invoke the actions of the early church to make my point. In the early church, you see that they were situated under Roman occupation. You know, Paul gets imprisoned. And as he's imprisoned in Acts chapter 26, he's speaking to Agrippa and Festus, and Agrippa tells him, I, uh, you know, I'm almost being persuaded to be a Christian, Paul, by your defense of yourself, you know, and, you know, that, that's kind of a win. So it's a legal win in a dark country. And, you know, Paul, in that moment, um, you just got to love that he keeps the end in mind. He says, Agrippa, I would to God that not only you, but everyone else who hears me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. In other words, the end in mind for every Christian is not merely that men and women all over the United States would be legally obliged to protect the sanctity and dignity of unborn life. That's just a, that's a starting line, and it's good. But no, the end for, for us as Christians is that every man and woman in the United States would come to the knowledge of the glory of the grace of God manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ and be saved from death, hell, and born again into eternal life. You know, that's the end game. So we choose to celebrate together but we also with the end in mind you know we there's there's work to be done number 3 we speak the truth in love if the conversation arises at work or with your family speak the truth of god in love don't be ashamed or afraid present the case for the sanctity of human life openly share the forgiveness that's found in jesus christ for every sinner who comes to faith in him in in my experience there's not a ton of ho, a low hanging fruit online but man sometimes that discourages us from believing that jesus's words are true that the harvest is plentiful and i think that the harvest is plentiful uh, go and advance the gospel in conversations with people. They're, you know, the issue's labors, not not the harvest. Number four, get involved. Uh, in the upcoming weeks, I'm going to have a podcast with Leah Elder, the director of Providence Orphan Care, talk about some of the things Providence is doing with foster care and adoption. There's going to be greater needs in ministries like these because of the new laws that are coming into effect, but there's no greater time for the church to rise to the occasion and share the love of God through generosity and service. So get involved. And then finally, the most important thing is pray. The fact that something as serious and significant as the legality of abortion has been returned to the states is a call for Christians everywhere to pray and ask God to move on the hearts of legislative bodies across the country to see the sanctity of human life as something that must be protected. We know that there's no good thing that comes to us but by Almighty God and His hand, and so we ought to pray even more fervently than, than ever that his hand would be on our country, especially now. Pray for the protection of pregnancy centers that are getting attacked as they seek to serve mothers. Pray for God to move on the hearts of his people to foster and adopt children who are going to be born without parents to care for them. Pray for our country to be at peace, not in this tumultuous war with one another. Pray for God, most importantly, to turn the tides of our nation and bring revival sweeping through with an awakening like we've never seen. If you've taken time to listen to this whole thing, I want to say thank you. I really appreciate it. I know that it's been long, but I hope that it's been helpful. This is something that I care deeply about. It's near to my heart for multiple reasons that I didn't get to get into, but it's my prayer that as you listen to this, that your heart's moved both to compassion for the unborn and it's also moved to repentance for the areas that are necessary. But most importantly, I hope it's moved to worship for Christ who saves us, loves us, cares for us. And that we all find ourselves on this side as sinners in need of grace. And that through his matchless blood on the other side as the saints of the living God. And so I just want to give you that encouragement. If you want to know more information about Providence, you want to get involved on Sunday morning, please come. 
love to have you. We have 9 o'clock services, 1045 services. Bring anybody that you want. The children's ministry is up and running fully. If you want to check out more of our sermons, you can check out our podcast on ProvidenceTX.org and look up some sermons there. Um, but until next time, and hopefully that will be really soon, I just want to say thanks for listening. And love God and love people. 